Well, this morning, I am so excited. Uh, we are kicking off a brand new series this morning here at South Creek, and it's called Nehemiah, A Fixer Upper Story. I am so excited. Uh, Nehemiah is a book in the Old Testament. I'm going to tell you more about Nehemiah, who he is, where a little bit about the book. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk about this idea of why did I call it a fixer-upper story? You know, as I've been studying Nehemiah, I'll just be truthfully honest with you guys. It's not a story that, like, as a kid really, like, grabbed me. It wasn't something where I was like, Dad, read the story of Nehemiah again. I want to know about, you know, give me some of those genealogies and some of those sort of things. You know, I found as I've gotten older that I love the Old Testament when I read it through the lens of Jesus. That if I read it on its own, some of it can be kind of boring, some of it can be kind of weird, some of it still is boring and weird at times. I'll just be honest with you guys. But when we, when we begin to study it from the standpoint of where it fits in this overarching story of Jesus and the redemption that we have because of it, it begins to open up stuff for me that I just never knew about. But it's funny, Fixer Upper. How many of you guys uh, like shows like Fixer Upper, like all those different things? I, so here's really a funny thing. Anyone else as a kid hate those? Like, I thought it was the most boring thing. Like, why would we watch a show basically about doing boring chores and projects? My, my mom is a saint. She's here this morning. Uh, shout out Jeannie Perry. And um, I feel bad for her because she grew up in a, or she lived in a house where there were, she had three sons. And uh, she's still standing. She didn't kill any of us. Um, she, again, deserves sainthood. And uh, so our house, our TV was typically dominated by cartoons, by sports, by action movies. And whenever my mom did get the remote, though, it would typically go to, like, TLC, and I think it was called Trading Spaces or Trading Places. Trading Places is a – anyways, you know, you know the show I'm talking about. And so I would always think it was the most boring thing. That was my way of loving my mom was watching it and not complain. Um, but it's funny how as I got into adulthood and as Hunter and I, you know, began thinking about buying a house and eventually bought a house, it's crazy how you start liking those shows, right? Where you're like, you know, you're sitting there and thinking like, oh, wow, you picked Back Bass Clash? Like, what idiots? Or, oh, man, you're going you're gonna to cover up those beautiful hardwoods? And um, it's just funny, though, that we, we like those sort of shows, though, don't we? Um, no matter what, no matter who you are, even if you find it boring, there's part of you that even if you're like, oh, I don't want to watch that with my spouse, with my kid, there's part of you that kind of wants to see the transformation, don't you? You love seeing how there was this broken down, dilapidated thing that just looked hopeless. And there's something really neat, something really beautiful about seeing it being restored. Nehemiah's story is a story of of something that was broken down, that was in ruins, and how God restored it. And it's important to understand why he restored it. And we're going to get more into this whole fixer-upper idea uh, in just a minute. But I want to talk to you about Nehemiah. Now, if you have a Bible with you this morning, if you were to open up, Nehemiah, whether it's, whether it's in a physical Bible or in a digital Bible, most of our Bibles today, you're going to find Nehemiah kind of in the middle of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is the first half of our Bible that we have today. This tells the story of God's relationship with his people from creation up until the point, about 400 years before Jesus came. And what's interesting is Nehemiah is kind of smack dab in the middle. But chronologically speaking, that's not actually where Nehemiah's story is. Now, just a quick aside, our Bible is, is made up in different parts. The first part is what's commonly referred to as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then we get into these areas that are called the historical books, which tell kind of just the story of the historical story. That's where Nehemiah is. Then you get into books of wisdom and poetry. Then you get into the major prophets and the minor prophets, the, the people who God used to speak to his people. So that's why it's there. But in reality, get your mind thinking on the fact that Nehemiah is actually at the tail end of the story. 
We talked recently, uh, being at Christmas time, about how there was this period of silence where God was speaking with his people, doing different things, but then there was sort of like this 400-year lull before the angels came. Nehemiah would have been on the very last bit of God speaking to his people before the Messiah came. So it's kind of crazy to think about. You're talking about this three to 400-year period where this is happening. Now, Nehemiah's story is really interesting because you have to know the story before the story to know the real story. You digging with me? All right, hang tight with me, okay? Give me some affirming nods so that way you also don't nod out real quick, okay? So in the story of God's relationship with his people, the Israelite people eventually had this nation, this kingdom, and they had this great king named King David. You might have heard him before, David and Goliath. He was the shepherd boy, all that sort of stuff. He eventually becomes king. And he creates this united kingdom of all these tribes of the Israelite people. And it's this beautiful, beautiful thing. But because of sin, because of rebellion, because of unfaithfulness, eventually the kingdom gets split. And eventually both of the kingdoms get taken into captivity, into exile, which means that they were taken over. They basically become enslaved. Some got to stay there and serve those people. Others got sent off to foreign lands. Now, when this exile happens, this is a long period of time. And what ends up happening is you have... Uh, the people losing some of their identity of who, and most importantly, whose they are. They're either living in a foreign land where other gods are worshipped, where other customs and practices are happening, or they're still living in their own land, but it doesn't look the same anymore. It looks completely different. And so Nehemiah was a person who would have been a part of the exile. And Nehemiah had a pretty interesting story in the fact that he rose through the ranks. He eventually becomes the cupbearer to the king. Basically, his job was he would sample the king's wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. I mean, you know, some of us are probably sitting there thinking, like, that's not a terrible job. Other than the fact that, you know, you take one wrong sip and you're dead. Uh, it's not a bad job. But it would have been a place that would have given him a seat of great authority. He would have spent a lot of time with the king. He would have been in a, in a, in a place of great comfort and privilege. And this is really interesting. So, now that we kind of know some of the story before the story, you, you, you got to know we're, we're going to begin the story. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. If not, it is going to be up on the screen. And I promise you, there's going to be some words. So if there's any biblical scholars out there that I will mispronounce because we're in the Old Testament. And half the Old Testament, there are words we don't know how to pronounce, right? So this is how it began. It began first by telling us, that's not on the screen, that this is the story of Nehemiah. And it says, in the month of Kisavel... In the twelfth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So let's set the stage here. All of these are only important, some of these random little intricate details, just so we can understand some of the timeline of when it takes place. So he is at this this citadel of Susa, which would have been sort of this like extra palace that uh, the, the king Artaxerxes would have had. You know, I'm kind of like how we all have our extra palaces today. You know, we go at different points of the year, at least I do. And um, he's there, he's with the king, and, and, and one of his friends, one of his brothers, Hananiah, comes, and, and he's giving him some news about what is going on back in their ancestral home. Now, keep in mind, Nehemiah's not been there. There's generations removed from this place. This is what he said. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the providence are in great trouble and disgrace. 
The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been buried, have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now this is hundreds of years. This, this is what's sort of interesting. Scholars debate about this. The reality that this is brand new news to Nehemiah is not likely. These gates, these, these walls would have been destroyed over a hundred years before he got this news. So there's, there's two different leading, leading thoughts. Either truly he just did not know, or maybe like you, there's just one time where you heard about an injustice, you heard about something bad that just led you to say, I can't stand for this. Maybe you've had this happen before. Maybe you've heard about poverty. Maybe you've heard about human trafficking. Maybe you've heard about the orphan crisis. Maybe you've heard about uh, the, 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 the a drug addiction epidemic. And you hear about it, and you almost can become callous. But maybe you have a moment, a holy moment of discontent where God breaks your heart. I believe that this is what happened to Nehemiah. That Nehemiah, in that moment, began to experience not just some sort of news, but he began to experience a calling. This morning, as we're going to study sort of the first two chapters of Nehemiah, I want us to to frame our mind around this idea of calling. That God has called us to something great. Each one of us. And and it's going to be different in different ways. And sometimes when I say calling, you need to throw out this idea that it means, all right, I'm going to go to a far-off land. I'm going to rebuild some sort of wall. I'm going to do something great. Calling sometimes is the most important calling for some of us sometimes may just be being a parent being a friend, being a a great husband or a great wife. There's so many different things, but there's this reality that if you never acknowledge your calling, you're probably not going to really follow through on your calling. Now, here's what's interesting. We talked about here how we we talked already about this idea that he sat down and he wept. Now, now I, I believe there's a difference between weeping and crying. Crying, you cry about something usually because it's painful, you get over it. Weeping is just this deep emotional place of where you just don't know what to do and it touches you to the core kind of like when you watch the movie coco and at the end when he sings to mama coco you're weeping maybe just me but here's what's crazy based off the timeline most scholars think that nehemiah may have prayed and fasted for four months four months can you imagine that for four months just having this response to prayer and fasting hearing something that was grave and terrible and not knowing what to do about it. And instead of immediately acting, he acted in a different way. Instead of just leaving or trying to go or, or just saying forget about it. For four months, likely, he sat and he prayed and he fasted and he weeped. And you know, there's a lot of questions. Why would he do that? Doesn't that seem a little bit overboard? You know, I have to think there's maybe a couple things going on here. Maybe he believes, wow, our sin has been that grave that I, I have no other response to do this. I have nowhere else to go. But I also think there could have been a third piece in there too. That he knew what God was calling him to do was going to be difficult. And he wasn't sure how he was going to do it. He needed some courage and some mustering. Can I be honest with you guys about something? Everyone, I think, in theory, likes the idea of being called. But typically we like the idea of like, God, I want you to call me to go live in some sort of great palace somewhere where people will take care of me. And, and everything will line up. We, we always want that calling. But the reality is that being called by God will cost us something. Being called by God will cost us something. We don't like to talk about that. 
we like the idea of like, I want a really great adventure. I don't know if you guys are like me. I love hearing people's stories. And I love like when you hear about adventures, right? I love watching movies where there's some sort of big adventure. But can I be honest with you guys? I don't really want to live them. Because let's be honest, it's really fun to see sort of like the high glory moments of someone on an adventure. But no one really likes to live the moments where you feel helpless, where you feel hopeless, where there's opposition, where, where you're in trouble. No one likes that. But the reality is that if you're called to anything worthy of being called to, it will cost you something. It may cost you your time. It may cost you a status, a job, a relationship. But there's this reality that we always have to understand this idea that if God is calling us to something, it means he knows what's ahead. There is something better. Now, it may not be better in our standpoint, but it will be something better. The interesting thing is our cultural point of view tends to be that God is always going to call us to something better. But our better is always more money, bigger house, more prestige, easier, right? But the reality is throughout the Bible and throughout the history of mankind, especially those who follow Jesus, rarely ever do they actually go to something that is better in terms of what our culture would say. Yes, God rewards us. Yes, God takes care of us. But calling is never supposed to be out about our comfort. It's never supposed to be about something that we feel more comfortable with. All right, so here's the prayer that Nehemiah prays. After he heard all these things, he sat down and he wept and he mourned and fasted. And then this is what he said. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. The people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are the, are the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as my dwelling for my name. They are your servants and, and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, again, there's this likelihood that there's this four-month period. So I don't think he just literally prayed this over and over, nor do I think it took him four months to say this. So that'd be a long, lots of long pauses. But I think there's this beautiful, beautiful prayer right here. Now, the story is going to continue on in a moment, and we'll get to it in a second, about this idea that he's going to ask the king, his boss, the most powerful person in the entire planet at that moment. He's going to ask him for a favor. And so as he prayed and fasted, he knew that the only way that anything good could come of it is if God was with him, if God was in it. I don't know about you, I can be really impulsive sometimes. There's a lot of times where I get great ideas that might not be God's ideas, and I just want to run with them. And part of my own wiring, this has been a year already where I've really enjoyed learning more about who I am and how God created me. But I think there's this part of me that thinks I can convince anyone anything. Not totally, 
But I think sometimes I think, all right, God, if I get a calling, let me get you on board. Let me, like, start this and just go and get you on board. And I think there's a lot of times where God looks at me and says, Aaron, how about when I plant something in your heart, you stop, you pray, and you ask if you can be invited into what I'm doing rather than you going to do something and invite me in. And so that's what he does. He prays and he prays. And one of the most beautiful things I think there that's a great lesson for us at this beginning of this new year is that what does he do? He repents. He confesses his sin. And he, I, I love that he, he, when he prays, he doesn't say, God, please forgive Israel for their sins. I'm sorry that they did that. I tried to tell them differently. He admits his own sin. He admits his own shortcoming, his family's shortcoming. And when's the last time we sat back and truly confessed to God, God, I'm sorry for the fact that I just completely blew it. Most of the time in the midst of my sin, can I be honest with you guys, I don't really confess my sin. I just say, God, I'm in trouble. I need your help. I don't say, God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I just say, God, I need your help. Almost like God has to help me. But I think here's the important lesson, is that restoration begins with repentance. This is a lesson for all of us, that if we want to have our story, our lives restored, it has to start with repentance. Because here's the truth. All of us, whether we like it or not, are a fixer-upper. Every one of us, there are things in our life that are broken. There are things that God says and he sees and he can say there is brokenness there. But he also says there is hope. I can see what we can do with this. I know I can restore and redeem this. But the reality is, is if we don't repent, repent just means to turn. And really it's this acknowledgement. If we don't acknowledge what is broken and decide that we want to experience it being fixed, we're going to forever stay in this brokenness. We'll forever just be like a city with walls that are broken down. You see, it's important to understand in that time why it was so important for this to happen is that walls in ancient cultures were incredibly important to the defense and the, the, the vitality of a city of a nation. You see, if there was brokenness in any parts of their wall, an enemy could easily attack them, could easily take over them, could easily just completely wipe them out. You know, the truth is, in our own lives, that can be the case too. Where there is brokenness, there is opportunity for either God to restore it and redeem it, or for the enemy to take a foothold. And until we acknowledge our our brokenness, until we begin to ask God to come alongside us and fix that brokenness, we're always going to be in a very, very dangerous position. Now, I'm not going to read the scripture, but here's what ends up happening. Nehemiah goes before the king, and the king actually notices. This is what's crazy. The, The most powerful person in the world notices that something is different about Nehemiah. He asks him, what is wrong with you? You look sad. And Nehemiah tells the story, and he asks the king, could I go back to my ancestral hometown and could I begin the process of rebuilding? Now, think about this. This person who owns this, this large empire, I mean, it would have been easy for him to be like, oh man, let's just like continue subduing it. Let's like knock it over and let's put me another palace there. But for whatever reason, the Lord had granted him favor. There had been enough relationship built there that he had grants him the ability to go back to his hometown. And not only that, he sends like a huge army and a bunch of people with him. I mean, this is just the favor of God at work. 
You know, I truly believe that sometimes when God calls us, when we, we don't feel like we can see how the details are going to work out, oftentimes God blows our mind with how he takes care of the details. Oftentimes greater than we ever could. And so Nehemiah makes this journey back. Now here's what's kind of interesting. Nehemiah's journey back, I think for us, we think about like, oh, I'm going to go to Indy. Like that's going to take 30 minutes, an hour, or whatever. Nehemiah's journey to Jerusalem is likely somewhere between seven and 900 miles. Now, by camel, by a large thing, we're talking about a very, very long journey. We're talking about a dangerous journey. You have to think that in this time, uh, it was very easy. That's part of the reason why the king sends him, this army with him, is that Nehemiah would have been a sitting duck. The journey itself, just to get back there, was going to be a huge, huge undertaking, was going to be a huge risk to begin. And that can be true in our lives. Sometimes there's risk along the way to get to the place where God truly is calling us. It doesn't mean we we do stupid things. It doesn't mean we do foolish things or selfish things. But there is this reality that when God calls us to something, it's probably going to be risky. It's probably going to be dangerous. But he goes. And then he gets there and he assesses the wall. He looks at night and he finds where all the different weak places are. And eventually, here's what Nehemiah does. He gathers the people and he plants a vision to them about what God wants to do with them. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. He says this, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. And also I told them about the gracious hand, my God, that my hand on... And also I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. You know what's crazy about this story to me? Nehemiah went having no idea how the people would respond. Can you imagine that? I mean, maybe if you have a teenager, you can probably imagine that. Um, But can you imagine this idea of going on this crazy long journey and having no idea what's going to happen? Because the reality is sometimes when we're in the midst of brokenness, sometimes it's hard to fully feel like we can take care of it, right? Sometimes it's hard to see a way out. And the beauty of Nehemiah's story is Nehemiah comes to these people who are broken, are in danger, and in ruin, and they plant a vision to them that there is a way out, that there is hope. And the truth is there's people in our own lives today who need us to be a Nehemiah for them. We need us to go and not tell them, wow, this is broken, you're awful. But to say, I see so much hope, so much beauty, so much potential in you. And I want to come alongside you. And I want to rebuild what was broken. I want to I see a, a restoration project happen. I'm going to ask the band to come back out and they're going to close this one song. But, but here, here's a few closing thoughts to think about because we're going to, we're going to be diving more into the story of Nehemiah. We're going to talk about the fact that, spoiler alert, they do re- rebuild the wall in 52 days, which is crazy. And we're going to talk about some of the craziness of all of that. But here's a couple things to consider since today was all about calling. Calling is not about comfort or rationality. It is about faithfully fulfilling the Father's mission. I believe that with every fiber of my being is that each one of us are called to something. And my hope and my prayer is that over the next month, you're going to be praying, you're going to be going before the Lord and asking Him if you don't already know, what are you calling me to? 
Because I believe that each one of us have an awesome opportunity to be a part of the mission that God has here on earth to redeem and restore broken relationship with people, to help those who are in darkness find the light. But if you don't ask, if you don't pray, and if you're not willing to be a part of, you're going to sit back forever and say, why isn't God using me? We're going to sit back and say, why does my life feel empty? It's because we have to realize that calling is not going to be about comfort or rationality, but it's about God's mission. Here's the second thing, is that understanding. I said we have to understand the overarching importance of the story in the Old Testament. So the overarching importance of the narrative of Nehemiah is this, is that for God to fulfill his promises, the city had to be rebuilt. You see, all of the messianic prophecies, all the prophecies about Jesus, about a Savior coming, had to do with this idea that first, Jerusalem, even though it had been burned, it had been broken, it would be in ruin because of the sin of the people, that it would be rebuilt. And that out of this people group, God would raise up a Savior who would be a blessing to all nations, who would come and restore and redeem. And here's just the reality. Our God is a God of promises. Yes, could have God done something differently? He's God. I'm not, I'm not going to put him there. But our God is a God who always fulfills his promises. So the big importance of Nehemiah's story, yeah, we're going to learn a lot of great things about it, but where it fits into the story of our lives and the story of Jesus is this reality that for Jesus to come, this wall, these walls had to be rebuilt. These people had to begin to re-worship like they had done before. And without this happening, we don't have Jesus. And so that's why it's important. But how does that connect to us? My friends, I believe wholeheartedly that there are some biblical promises that God has in store for you that can only happen if you're restored. Now, don't misconstrue that as I must rebuild myself, I must clean myself up, I must mend the brokenness and come before God. No, 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 no. Here's the reality. We come to him and he is the one who restores our brokenness. He redeems our stories. But the reality is is that unless we allow him to restore us, unless the brokenness is taken care of, we're always going to have spots where the enemy can get us. We're always going to have things that God wishes he could give us, promises, peace, hope, love, joy, different things like that, Um, relationships that are healthy, that if we don't shore up the brokenness, there's just the reality that we're not going to experience those things. And for some of you, that is your story. You're like, I've, I've, I've prayed a prayer. I have a relationship with God. My life really hasn't changed, but I'm, I'm just so frustrated because it feels like God isn't there and it feels like my life feels nothing different and there's still just tons of chaos and brokenness. And why didn't this work out? And the reality is, is because we have not truly allowed God to restore us. We've allowed the brokenness to persist. We've gotten to the point where we just said, this is okay. This is the way it should be. Here's what I want to tell you. It's not have to stay that way. One of my favorite parts of stories like Fixer Up or shows like Fixer Up is this. I love watching those moments where Joanna Gaines, she'll sit somewhere and she'll just look. And as I'm watching it, I just see this, this broken, dilapidated place. And she sees a home. She sees the fact that, wow, this wall here that, 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 that just doesn't make sense, we could knock this out. This could be a living room. She sees the fact that even though this roof is caving in, that this could be a safe place, a home for these people. And you know what? So much of the world is going to be like the people they're walking with. Who are saying, I just can't see it. 
the enemy is going to speak words of, 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 of just hopelessness over you and say, you couldn't be that way. You don't deserve that. That's not your story. And may I tell you that God sees you and he says, man, just allow me. Give me the chance. And I promise you, I can restore what's broken. I promise you, I can make you beautiful. I can recreate you in the image that I intended you to be in, which is in a beautiful relationship with me. We don't have to experience the chaos the world says you do. We don't have to be uh, susceptible to the brokenness and the, 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 the enemy coming at you. So here's this, friends. If you miss anything else, don't miss this. Is that the first step in fixing our brokenness is acknowledging that the brokenness is there and acknowledging that God has a plan to fix it. He invites you in. This morning, I don't know what your story is, but I beg you, I plead you to know that our Heavenly Father looks at you and He says, My son, my daughter, come let me fix you. Come let me deal with what is broken. And man, will you feel whole. Man, can you see some of the amazing things I have for you. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. I'm going to pray and we're going to close out just singing, proclaiming the truth that our God is good. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for who you are. And God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you, like Nehemiah, traveled a long distance and came and gave us a vision of a new way, gave us hope. And not only that, God, you got some skin in the game to help rebuild what was broken. God, I pray this morning in the powerful name of Jesus that those who are just feeling like there's no way that I could be restored. I am beyond this. I'm beyond this. I'm damaged good. I pray in the name of Jesus that those voices would be silenced and that they would only hear the voice of the one true God who is calling them and saying, I am your father. You are beautiful. You are important. And I see so much good in you. But allow me to begin the fixer-upper process. Allow me to shore up what is broken. God, this morning, would we just hear you as you speak truth over us? God, would we hear you as maybe you want to call us to something great like you called me? God, we are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.